It doesn't get any bigger than the Exodus. I'm giving you the opportunity. And he goes on with his sales pitch. And uh, I was going to be, we were going on a camping trip, so I was going to be in the woods for the next two, three days and knew I was coming back and I'd have about a week to do this thing, if that. And usually I don't have that much preparation. Usually I have more preparation time than that. But I figured this is one of the few stories in the Bible they actually made a movie of. So I just, just went home and watched the movie. Did the cartoon version too. So did the old one and, and then... Um, but uh, no, but seriously, this is a really exciting topic. Uh, the Exodus is really cool. Um, there's so much in this. And so I want to remind you guys that what we're doing here is a large, big picture overview of the Old Testament. So probably the most frustrating thing about preparing for this message was I knew there was a lot of stuff that I didn't have time to talk about. There's so much goodness. I literally have four books of the Bible and 45 minutes. So I got like 11 minutes per book of the Bible. Um, so there's a lot of great stuff going on here that I obviously can't get into. Uh, so I do encourage you to, to dig into this stuff for yourself because there's going to be a lot of things I just make kind of glancing references to and passing blows. And, and I want you to, to get into this stuff um, and dig into it more because there's so much good stuff in here. Um, Let's start by looking back on where Matt had us last week as he talked about the patriarchs, uh, and specifically Abraham. And, and you'll remember uh, that Matt drew attention to God calling Abraham back in Genesis 12, right? He calls Abraham out, and then he makes a covenant with Abraham in, in Genesis 15. Y'all remember that? Y'all were there, right? Got it? So he calls Abraham, and he makes a covenant with Abraham, Right? And Matt talked about God's desire it is to have a kingdom, right? Y'all remember God's kingdom? He talked about this. And y'all remember, the, uh, it's in your notes, so you can, you can kind of look along with me. God's kingdom, and you'll hear this, you'll probably hear this phrase a hundred times over the next few weeks. God's kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule. That should be like, you should be able to say that in your sleep by the time this series is done. God's kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule. And if you think about any king, earthly, heavenly, whatever, is going to have that. A king is going to have people in a place that he rules over, right? So those are like the defining characteristics of a kingdom, and God desires to have a kingdom. So this is what God is doing. Um, and we see the beginning of this by, by God choosing his unique people. So God specifically, this thing is driving me nuts, and I'm sure it's doing twice as much for y'all. Um, he chooses a unique people to have a special relationship with. And this relationship, remember, why, remember we talked about why God chose Abraham. And it's because of nothing that Abraham did, right? Abraham was an idol worshiper, right? So, so it's not like God looked around and said, he's the best guy around. I'm going to pick him and start my people with him. Uh, that would be more like what happened with Noah, kind of. But this, this is simply, he looks at some seemingly to us random schmo in the desert and says, you, I'm going to make my people out of you. Um, and so we see that that, is, that that calling and covenant is exclusively out of God's grace, right? That's totally the grace of God. Um, now, after Abraham, we go through Isaac and through Jacob and then to Joseph. And I, and I know that we didn't have a whole lot of time to pay attention to Joseph last week. And as, as I was talking to Pastor Peter about this uh, earlier this week, it's a shame because Joseph is an amazing narrative. It's an amazing epic tale probably more than anybody else in the Old Testament, he mirrors Christ. He's a, he's a great foreshadow of Christ. It's just a fantastic, fascinating story with highs and lows. Um, 
And it ends with Joseph being basically second in command in the world, right? So he goes from being thrown into a pit to being second in command in the world. And that's where we leave off in Genesis, right? He's got his people around him, and his people aren't very big at this point in time. His people are like his brothers and their kids. So there's probably like, I don't know, like 100 people, something like that, I don't know. Um, so not a, not a huge group of people that is the people of Joseph in this, in this situation. Um, well, a lot happens in the first chapter of, of Exodus. And so that's where we're left off. And we're going to look at Exodus as a broad story, the, the big picture, the broad storyline of Exodus. And I want to hit three big points. Um, we're going to talk about God's chosen people being in bondage. Um, we're going to talk about God delivering his people using one of their own. And then finally, uh, we're going to talk about God calling his people uh, to walk in fellowship with him and, and to reflect his glory. So that's, that's kind of the big overarching picture of Exodus that we're going to take. So Genesis 1, we see we've, we've moved forward and, and it talks about Joseph dying and, and, and future generations coming up. And we see already, we see God's faithfulness to his promise to Abraham. You remember the, some of the things that God promised to Abraham. One of them was that he was going to make his people great. He wasn't just going to choose his people and, and, and have them be his special people. He was going to grow them in number, right? You know, stars in the sky, sands on the shore. Y'all remember that, right? So he's going to have a lot of people. And we see right at the beginning of Exodus, we see God keeping faithful to his promise. We see there's a bunch of verses in Exodus 1 where, where God, where the, where the writer talks about the people growing in number. Um, Exodus 1-7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Um, in Exodus 1-12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. So you see constantly, you see the spreading, God fulfilling his promise to make Israel a great nation, to, to make it lots of people. Uh, very uh, simple promise, but obvious, real keeping of God's promises, and, and we want to always remember that, that God is about keeping his promises, right? We don't serve a liar. He keeps his promises to his people, and that's, that's important to know. However, there's kind of a fly in the ointment here, which is that God's people, while they are being multiplied, are in bondage, right? So if we look at, uh, if you look at Exodus 1, if you're there, uh, Exodus 1, 11, um, and I'm reading out of the ESV, um, talk about the Egyptians who are afraid of because these people are growing. Uh, he said, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So, if you're an Israelite, maybe you've heard these promises in the past that your people are supposed to become a great people. This might be a little disenchanting, right? You're called to be God's people. You're supposed to be God's special people. And you're making bricks and stuff. And you're, you're serving harsh taskmasters who are beating you, who are making you toil for little or no pay, barely keeping you alive just enough to do their work. And that's about it. And it would be easy to question God here. It would be easy to doubt God, except for the fact um, that this bondage was also part of God's promise. Um, God's promise was not simply, you're going to have lots of people, it's going to be awesome. Um, Genesis 15, in part of that covenant, 
The Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Uh, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So, so the people of Israel theoretically should see this coming. This Hopefully this got passed down too. Um, so this bondage is part of God's plan, but what does that tell us about God's plan? If his plan includes the bondage of the people, then this covenant can't just be for their benefit, right? If the covenant is just to take God's people and make them great, I mean, we're at a great place at the end of Genesis to make that happen, right? God's people have become great. Joseph is the second most powerful man in the world. All it takes is like Pharaoh having like a bad case of food poisoning, and bam, God's people are on top of the world, right? This is all it requires. But instead, they go through oppression, right? They go through bondage. They go through suffering and slavery. So it tells us that, that, that God's picture, his, his, his plan, his, his, his agenda is bigger than just the happiness and the well-being of the Israelites. That God is doing something bigger here. Um, namely, that God is painting a bigger picture of himself, Remember, God's covenant is not about us. It's not about the Israelites. It's not about God's people. We are lucky bystanders who get caught up in God's declaration of his own glory. And God chooses us for some reason that we don't know. He chose the Israelites for some reason that we can't tell. Um, But they are the beneficiaries of God desiring to make his name great. And how he's going to do this is by foreshadowing What's going to happen in the New Testament, which we'll talk about in a few, um, his ability to save. So in order for God to demonstrate, in order for him to demonstrate what he wants to do by saving his people from bondage, he needs the Israelites to go through bondage, right? We need to see in the Old Testament, he's, he's, he's desiring to show this pattern of my people are in bondage and I'm going to save them from it. He wants to show his power over any form of bondage and slavery. And so the Israelites being in bondage to the most powerful man in the world, that gives God an opportunity to show how much more powerful he is. And that's what God's doing here. Um, This is a bigger picture than just the Israelites. God's foreshadowing what he's doing over the course of history. Um, So with his people in bondage, God sets about to deliver them. And, um, you know, the story of Exodus. When we think Exodus, who's the first person you think of? Moses, right? He wrote the book. He is the, he's the guy whose name is there over and over again. Moses did this, Moses did this, Moses went and saw these people, Moses talked to Pharaoh. Moses, and Pharaoh might be the second most, most, most prominent person you think of, because it's Moses versus Pharaoh, and Moses wins. And I want you to remember that in Exodus, whoa, Exodus, just like in all of Scripture, the main protagonist, the main character, the hero is God. And that sounds really obvious, but it's really important to remember as we approach books like this, that this is not about how awesome Moses is. It's about how amazing God is. And you see that from the very beginning. God sovereignly chooses Moses. Again, why Moses? Why not? Just that's who God chose. Um, at the very beginning of his life, Moses is in danger of being killed, right? We all know the story. There's all, the, all the Israelite firstborn are going to be killed, and, 
and uh, or all the all the Israel children being born are going to be killed, and then you know Moses' mother sticks him in the reeds in the basket, and then Pharaoh's daughter finds. We all know the story, right? Well, at the beginning of his life, Moses is completely helpless. It is up to the sovereign hand of God to pres- to preserve his servant, who's going to save his people. So from day one, we see God's sovereignty on display. It's not about Moses being awesome. If it was all up to Moses' awesomeness, he would have been killed. It's about God's sovereignty. And that's really, really important to remember as we look at this. Um, It's not about the craftiness of Moses' mother. It's not about the kindness of Pharaoh's daughter. It's about God. It's about God and his unstoppable juggernaut of a sovereign plan to save his people and to declare his glory. That's what the Exodus is about. Um, You know, one big thing, we see these kind of leaping moves forward in Exodus. And, and one of the biggest things we see in Exodus, uh, again, God being the main character is the revelation of his name. Um, God has interacted with, with, his, with the patriarchs. He interacts with, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But it's always by what he does. He says, I'm the God who does this. I'm the God who does this. I'm the God who provides. I'm the God. That's how God, throughout all of Genesis, identifies himself. In Exodus, he has this conversation with Moses at the burning bush. And again, the conversation is not about how awesome Moses is. It's about, I am the Lord. And so after years of people knowing God by his actions, this is going to be the first moment where a human being hears the name of God. And God speaks to him and says, I am. Exodus 3, we've all heard this passage. Then Moses said to God, if, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Uh, later in Exodus 6, God even draws this, this distinction here. He says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord... I did not make myself known to them. This is a big revelation. This is a huge step forward in the story of the Bible. This is a a key moment. Exodus 3 is a key moment in the story of the Bible. Um, Not only does it reveal God's self-existence. In other words, I am. I'm not here because somebody made me. I just am. And I always have been and I always will be. There's that sense of timelessness and constancy that, that God will be who he will be to his people, and that there's no force bigger or stronger or greater or older or anything than him that's going to prevent him from being who he's going to be to his people. So God revealing himself, again, is a testimony to his covenant with his people and how he's going to reveal himself. So God reveals himself, and then he comes to save. He saves his people. Now, how does God save his people? He saves them through the shedding of blood, right? We all, again, we all know the story of the Passover where the Israelites are told to keep these lambs and to, and to sacrifice them to God um, and to paint their, their doorposts with the blood of the lamb and to partake of the lamb. And as, as the Holy Spirit, or as God comes throughout the land and kills the firstborn Egyptians, um, the, the, the children of the Israelites will be saved. You know, it's probably the most vivid display of the cross, maybe, that we get in all of the Old Testament. Um, 
you know, it's important to realize that it's by God's grace alone that the Israelites aren't killed this night, right? The Passover tells us something in that if this were just about God killing the Egyptians and they're the only ones that deserve to die and the Israelites didn't deserve to die, then God, I'm, God's right, God knows everything, right? So God could easily go through, look house to house in the blink of an eye, tell who's Egyptian, who's Israelite, and kill the Egyptians and leave the Israelites alive, right? He could totally do that. So why this Passover thing? Why are lambs dying? Why? Well, because God's showing something bigger. The Israelites don't survive because they're Israelites. They don't survive because they don't deserve to die. They survive because God has grace on them, and he has grace to show them how they can cover their sins. That's what God's doing here. He's not saving them because, because they're better than the, Isra- than the Egyptians. Um, God's grace is necessary for the Israelites to survive this night. God's, God's salvation is often violent, and we see that later as once the Israelites leave, again, it's another story we all heard growing up. The Israelites are on the banks of the Red Sea, and the, Israel, and the Egyptian chariots are coming towards them, and they're kind of stuck between a, a rock and a hard place or a spear and a wet place, and, and, and they're, they're going to die. This is literally the worst-case scenario before God splits the Red Sea and his people walk through on dry land. Um, but after his people go through on dry land, of course, Pharaoh comes after, right? And then the, the sea closes. And all of Pharaoh's chariots, all of his men die. God violently opposes those who are against him and his people. That's part of how God saves, is to crush his people's oppressors. Again, God wants to just, he doesn't just want to save his people. He wants to demonstrate his power over his enemies and the enemies of his people. That takes these things from being little Bible stories to being part of the overarching, what we would call the meta-narrative of Scripture. It's, it's the overarching story of Scripture. Um, and, and why did God do this? God saved his people to demonstrate his glory and his faithfulness. God is faithful to his people. Uh, and we see just, you want to know why God does what he does? Look at Exodus 2. I'm going to start in, uh, sorry, Exodus 6. I'm going to start in verse 2. It says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to a- Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Again, God is the chief protagonist. You notice how often God's saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. It's because it's about what God does. It's not about 
the greatness of these Egypt, of the of the Israelites or the heroes that pop up through the story. It's about God. The Exodus is about God accomplishing his purpose of reconciling his people to himself. If you guys want to know, if anybody asks you what's the Bible about, a little side note here, the Bible is about God reconciling his people to himself. That's, that's the story of the Bible. The Bible is a story about God reconciling his people to himself and the great lengths and amazing acts he accomplishes to make it happen. So that's what God's doing. You know, God calls his people after this. So God saves them. We've gone through the, what, maybe the, the classic point of the Exodus. I think we kind of see a, a switch once we get past the Red Sea. We start seeing God, uh, and it's kind of like they're officially out of the Egyptian uh, bondage. And we learn why God has saved his people. Uh, he saves these people uh, because, as you see in point three there, he calls them to walk in fellowship with him to reflect his glory. God wants a people on earth to reflect his glory. And so once God has safely removed them from the bondage, he calls them together at Sinai, right? Mount Sinai, where God's going to reveal his law. Um, this is Exodus 20. Now I'm going to spend a, a little bit of time on this. I think our relationship with the law is one of the most delicate, sometimes misunderstood issues that we as Christians have. And the law can be confusing. It can be, I think it's often disparaged. I think it's often denigrated when it shouldn't be. And I think the reason why this happens is that we, we fail to place the law in its proper context. Okay. Um, What's the Exodus about? Remember, it's God. What's the Bible about? God's re reconciling people to himself. God's people are in bondage. God has made a covenant with Abraham, right? He redeems his people. Why did God make a covenant with Abraham? Because of his grace, right? Why and how did God redeem his people? Through his grace. How's God, remember, he's going to bring them to a promised land, right? By his grace. The law, we need to remember that the law falls in the context of this pattern of grace from God. Okay? That's huge. Um, as I was studying for this, that was probably the biggest switch that went off in my head. Um, we need to remember that the law is saturated with God's grace. God's grace abounds in the law. It's grace the Israelites are even there to get it. They could have still been in Egypt. They could have died. They could have been swept up in the Red Sea with the Egyptians or died at the hand of the Egyptians. They could have starved to death. Any number of things could have happened. The very fact that they're alive still demonstrates the grace of God. That God is, God, the almighty sovereign God of the universe is there revealing himself to these people. That's grace, right? That's God's grace. Moreover, he's choosing them to be his image bearers, right? God wrote a book, right? It's the Bible. He wrote a book saying, talking all about himself. But he still chooses to have people walk on this earth to reflect his glory. For the Israelites, what did the Israelites do to earn that position? Nothing. It's all of grace. And so when we look at the law, we got to remember that this is grace. It's not, and Matt talked about this a little bit last week, it's not Old Testament law. Old Testament God is the judgment, wrath, justice God. 
And New Testament God is, 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 the, is the grace God. That's, that's just not true. The most wrath we ever see in the Bible happens at the cross, and that's in the New Testament. So this distinction that all of a sudden God changes and doesn't have wrath anymore in the Old Testament, uh, in the New Testament, and doesn't have grace in the Old Testament, it's, it's, just, it's a lie, guys. It's, 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 it's not true. Um, it's essential to read the law in a way that pays attention to its contextual place within the grand scope of God's covenantal relationship with Israel. Look at this quote from Graham Goldsworthy. Um, he says, two major events stand behind Sinai. The one is the Exodus, and the other is the covenant with Abraham. If the Exodus means anything, it means freedom from bondage. It is therefore clear that the law could not originate at Sinai as another form of bondage. Get that, guys. The Exodus event becomes a model of salvation by grace, its goal being the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham and the promised land. It is utterly inconceivable that God should break off his program of salvation by grace in midstream between Egypt and Canaan and despite his promises to Abraham, saddle his people with a frustrating program of salvation by works. The law is not about saving the Israelites. I want you to hear that because I had to get it drilled through my head as I was studying this stuff. It's not about saving the Israelites. God already saved the Israelites. The law is about something else. It reflects God. It's God revealing himself and showing the Israelites how they, can, how they can reveal him to other people. The law is about reflecting the nature of God and his covenant with Israel. Read this other quote here. All the commandments of God's covenant focus on the heart of the covenant relation, the bond between God and his people. He gives an example here. The seventh commandment, therefore, has its setting in God's covenant with Israel. The jealous love of marital devotion is given by God himself as a pattern of the love of his covenant. Marital faithfulness would, of course, strengthen family life in Israel when God's commandment was obeyed. Yet that commandment was always pointed to the faithful love of God for his people and his call for their jealous devotion in return. Okay? That's just one example. And you can look through the entire law and see God Revealing himself, revealing his plan to save, revealing his love for people, revealing his covenant relationship with man. That's what God's doing in the law. And it's his prescription for their happy fellowship with him. Here's how you enjoy fellowship with God. Do these things. Um, You know, I think of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's where our delight, that's where our blessing comes from, is our delight in the Lord. As we delight in the Lord, we'll be blessed. Um, and that doesn't mean physical blessing. It may, it may not. But God blesses his people as they delight in his law. And that's really important for us to remember. So, let's take this. So we see this Y'all see that kind of what happens through these four books of the Bible. God's people are in bondage. God rescues them from bondage using a, a servant of their own people. God calls them to walk in fellowship and to reflect his glory, right? That's the story of Exodus through end of Deuteronomy. And we talked about God's doing that because he wants to show something bigger. So let's look at the New Testament. Let's look at how all this... What all this says about what God does throughout all of Scripture. 
God's chosen people are in bondage. Humanity is enslaved by sin. God had to have his people go into bondage to reflect. If he's showing this, the big story, if he's showing the meta narrative in a small section here, he's got to show that bondage piece, right? Because people are enslaved to sin, and he's going to rescue them from that. Uh, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Peter wrote that whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. We are slaves to sins. And the bondage of the Israelites in Egypt gave God an arena, gave him a, a stage on which he could show his saving power and then foreshadow what he was going to do in Christ. Now, it's really important to recognize this. We are not in bondage to the law. I want you all to recognize this. We weren't walking around in bondage to the law and then God came and saved us and put us under his grace. Our bondage was to sin. It was to our sinful hearts. It was, it was the sin that, that, that permeates our members. That's what our bondage is to. Our bondage, and then we're saved and placed under God's grace. In the, in the same way, the Israelites were in bondage to the Egyptians, and they were called by grace to be placed under the goodness of his law. And then that gets revealed further to us as being revealed, as being under God's grace. So, again, the law is not the bad guy in the Bible. The law wasn't God's plan A that he scrapped when people couldn't do it right and sent Jesus. Because if that's the case, we wouldn't see Jesus so much throughout the stories of the Old Testament, right? We wouldn't see God foreshadowing his son in, in Joseph and in Moses if, if he was only an afterthought once people screwed up the law. Does that make sense? There's something bigger here. Um, and really, that's what the whole Bible's about. You remember, it's about God reconciling his people to himself, but it's doing it through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, Right? So that's what God does, is he delivers his people, point two, using one of their own, using, using a man, but using a man who is the God-man, who God sends down to reconcile his people to himself. Um, now, as you're studying it through Exodus, you're going to notice all kinds of similarities between Moses and Jesus. Um, they both descended from royalty to dwell among the lowly people. Um, they were coming to save. God, they both, remember, they both were the, the subject of a conspiratorial murder plot by a, a, a very powerful king that they managed by the grace of God to escape. Um, they're both called out into the wilderness. They both perform signs and wonders to prove themselves as ambassadors of God. It goes on and on. We don't really have a lot of the time to, to go into a lot of that stuff, but as you study the life of Moses, you can clearly see a, a, a strong resemblance to the life of Christ. Um, but you remember how I talked about, about how God revealed his name to Moses and what an important moment that was? It's a huge moment, right? God's never said his name to anybody. He shows up to Moses and says his name. It's, that's a huge jump here. Well, we see another quantum leap forward at the time of, of, of Jesus. Um, you, know, you remember God dwelt with man in the garden, but then that was severed by Adam's sin, Right? So then God revealed himself to the patriarchs and by his works. He revealed himself to Moses by his name. 
And then in the person of Jesus Christ, he revealed himself. He showed up. It's the first time we've seen God on earth since the fall. And of course, all this is still foreshadowing something even more amazing to come, which is when God returns in all of the fullness of his glory to call us home and to set up his kingdom. You know, we also see the Passover reminding us um, or foreshadowing for us the cross. We talked about that a little bit earlier. In the Passover, an innocent, spotless lamb dies as a substitute for the Israelites. In Christ, the innocent, spotless son of God dies as a substitute for all who believe. In the Passover, the lamb's blood covers the doorposts of those who obediently place their faith in God for salvation from death. Christ's blood covers all who obediently place their faith in God for salvation from God's righteous wrath. In Passover, the people are instructed to partake of the sacrificial lamb. Christ instructs his disciples to at least figuratively partake of the body of Christ. There's a covenant relationship there that's solidified by that partaking. Now again, through all that stuff, it's really important for us to remember why God does this. God's design for saving man is to demonstrate his grace and his faithfulness, right? God is jealous for declaring his faithfulness to man and the faithfulness to himself. As I was studying, I read a story of a theologian and pastor from the 18th century, uh, John Brown of Haddington. And uh, story, he was visiting one of his, an, LD, el, an elderly parishioner of his, an, an older lady who was on her deathbed. Um, he was seeking to confirm her, her assurance of her salvation and, and so he asked her now this is all going to happen in bad Irish accents for you sorry, uh, I think the quote's more effective in, in Irish accents so, so we're doing it that way he says Janet what would you say if after all he has done for you God should let you drop into hell and she responded Inzi likes if he does he'll lose more than I'll do even if he likes, even if he does, he'll lose more than I will. See, Janet saw something. All she suffered to lose, if God messed that up, if God, after her, after her placing his, her faith in him and his faithfulness to her, if God dropped the ball and sent her to hell, all she would lose was her soul. God would lose his reputation. God's reputation rides on his faithfulness to his covenant. God has promised to save us. And if he doesn't, well, that says something a lot worse about him than it does about us, right? God's saving plan is about him being faithful to himself, to who he is. God is not a liar. And in light of that security, we look at the third point. God calls his people to walk in fellowship with him and to reflect his glory. You know, Christ perfectly obeyed the law. He clarified it. He intensified it. He, he sought the depths of men's heart. He showed the all-surpassing purity of God. He was the fulfillment of the law. The law wasn't just about 
telling us what we should do. Uh, it wasn't just about us. It definitely wasn't about us earning salvation. God was showing his people how to walk in fellowship with him. But moreover, um, he, was, he was hinting at Christ. He was dropping hints throughout the law at the coming person and work of Christ. Uh, read you something else by Edmund Clowney. It's a little bit longer of a quote. Um, Christ's coming is not a divine afterthought. The blood of the covenant sprinkled at Sinai witnesses to the sacrifice of the Lamb of God chosen from the foundation of the world. We may, we may distinguish between the Ten Commandments and the ceremonial law, but we need to remember that they were given together. God did not speak words that could only condemn his people without providing the symbols of atonement. Since this is so, we may understand that even the content of the Ten Commandments may point us to Jesus Christ. God's jealousy for his own righteousness is also jealousy for his plan of salvation. Consider the second commandment. Why did God forbid the making of images for worship? We've already seen that it was not because an image is impossible, for God made man in his image. Why then did God prohibit man from worshiping him through images? The answer is that God was jealous for his coming revelation through Jesus Christ. No image or likeness was to be placed between the cherubim, cherubim on the mercy seat because God would in his own time send his incarnate son at whose feet the perfume of Mary's devotion could rightly be poured. Jesus Christ is the image of an invisible God. In his human nature, he reveals the Father. Worship apart from images means worship apart from any image except the one God has sent, his only begotten Son. The third commandment expresses God's zeal for his holy name. God shows the depth of that zeal in his jealousy for the name of Jesus, the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. God exalts the name of Jesus above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If Jesus were not God's eternal son, such worship would be sacrilege. But God sets apart his own name making it holy and glorious as he lifts up the name of Jesus. So too the Sabbath commandment is made for man, but especially for the Son of Man. Who is the Lord of the Sabbath and transforms it into the Lord's day by his resurrection? The rest that the Sabbath represents is the final rest that Christ provides. We hear that God's law, when we hear God's law given from Sinai, therefore we must not only tremble at its thunder and flee to Christ for his forgiveness and righteousness, we must also hear in it God's zeal for his own son and find in it witness to the redemptive purpose of the God who redeemed Israel from the house of bondage. That's what God's doing in his law, and that's what God calls us to do, is to reflect God's glory and his faithfulness. Because God's salvation plan is not about us, God. And guys, we are... I need to remind him that he knows that. Um, we get swept up in God's glorious grace and faithfulness, and we are happy beneficiaries of it. And likewise, God calls us as believers to live a lifestyle of holiness because it reflects this about God. Remember, you know, it's not like, it's not like the rules go away in the New Testament. 
There are tons of imperatives in the New Testament. The epistles, Christ himself, full of instructing us on how to act. Not as means of earning salvation, but means of enjoying God's fellowship more fully and declaring his greatness and glory on earth. And that's what we're called to do. So, so we've seen, last week we saw God's people, right? God called his people through Abraham, right? This week we've seen the establishment of God's rule. So what piece of the equation is missing? We got his place, right? We got God's people. We got God's people under God's rule. Next week, I believe it's going to be Matt, is going to draw our attention to God's place in the conquest of the promised land. God has promised this land, and by his grace, he's going to give it to them. So that's what we're looking forward to next week. Uh, let's pray, guys. God, thank you for your law. Thank you for revealing yourself um, to sinful men who don't deserve it. Thank you for calling us apart, setting us apart to be different, and Lord, for empowering us to walk. God, thank you for saving us from the bondage to sin. Thank you for calling us apart um, out of the shackles that we were in to walk and live in fellowship with you. God, we just don't deserve a thing. We don't deserve a thing. Aside from death and wrath. But God, you've given us so much more given us so much more you've lord you you sent your son to die for us and you've sent your holy spirit to dwell in our hearts to empower us to walk according to your purposes thank you so much god thank you in jesus name